The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Learn how to eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. I grew up in the era when we all thought we could have it all. But what I'm seeing now is that maybe what's always been more important than having it all is seeing it all is seeing that as divine beings, everybody here is worthy of love, of kindness, of respect, of inclusion. This means every person and every other being. And that's what we're going to be talking about on today's episode. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, host of the Main Street Vegan Program. Always a pleasure to have you here. If you're new to the world of Main Street Vegan, do check out our website, MainStreetVegan.net. And if you like what you hear here, check out nine years of archival programming and think about joining our special private group, the Facebook group, Main Street Vegan Podcast listeners. So today we are going to be talking about people, animals, acceptance, inclusion, and the makings really of the kind of world I think we all would love to live in. So after the break, I'll be talking with Lucas Spiegel, who took a magnificent trip just about all over the world and came up with a a beautiful photographic memoir of the people and animals that he met. And right now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Arianish Birdie. She is the executive director at Encompass, a nonprofit working to foster racial equality in the animal protection movement. And she is also the author, well, actually one of the authors, as I've read about this, it is a collaborative effort, as I think every book really is. Mm -hmm. And it's called 
um, Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation. So welcome, Arianish. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be talking to you. You too, because you are, are out there where many fear to tread, <laughs> trying to bring us all together. And, and in this particular time in history, even people who agree on a lot of things, like maybe we agree on food choices or we agree on animal issues, can still be so pulled apart by so many things. And I just really admire what you are doing with Encompass and with the new book. So tell us, tell us about this work that you do. Thank you. Yeah, I completely agree with that analysis. So um, at Encompass, we work to increase the effectiveness of the farm to animal protection movement, like you said, by fostering greater racial diversity, equity, inclusion, interdependence. Um, we're really working to more comprehensively include people of the global majority, which is the way we kind of talk about people of color, um, in the movement at all levels. And we're really focusing on creating that culture of equity. And so we work um, kind of on two different layers. One is working predominantly with white advocates who we know care so much about the world and, and how you know animals are used and abused and exploited in society. Um, ha help them better understand how race and racism affect our ability to work for those animals. And we also work directly with people of the global majority by building um, leadership skills, building our personal resilience, finding better and stronger connections, and putting ourselves in positions where we can be leaders um, and really help propel the movement forward by bringing 100% of our brilliance to work for animals. So. I Love yeah. how you say that with the 100% of the brilliance. So you've been around the movement for a while. I know that you worked for a physician's committee for responsible medicine for several years in the um, uh, part of their work that has to do with ending animal experimentation. So you've had a chance to observe this movement. How do we line up compared mm. to other sorts of um, movements trying to do good things in the world? That's a great question. Yeah. So I've been in the animal movement since around 1997, working on all different animal issues, fur farms, zoos, circuses, um, animals in laboratories, of course, factory farming. And, you know, when I've also studied when I was in college, I studied other social movements. And in terms of our demographics, we are much more of a homogenous group than other social movements. And I think it's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, one is we're one of the few social movements other than maybe the environmental movement where we're really kind of serving as allies to our core constituency um, who are really the animals. Whereas in many other social movements, we know that the people who are really leading the effort and the fight are the people who are most impacted and affected. And so the kinds of people who are able to, you know, really understand and see these are people who um, tend to have the time and the space and the ability to look at, you know, issue areas outside of ones that affect us personally. And so our movement, I've done an informal analysis, is about 90% made up of white folks. Um, 
And when I talk about the movement, I'm really talking about the more well-funded, the groups that, that um, are you know, hiring advocates. There's a massive grassroots effort um, all around the globe. And um, that's a little bit harder to capture the demographics of. But um, based on the movement, as I kind of define it, the more professional sector, we're largely um, a, a pretty homogenous group. And so in that respect, we are a little bit behind other advocacy movements. And I think uh, this is a really great time to understand that and and work to mitigate the harms that our movement may have done and address this issue more directly and use it as an opportunity to change and be the best that we can be. And I really, I really do have a lot of hope and enthusiasm for this movement and for our future. So what can we do about it? What are the steps you're taking and what are the steps that those of us listening to you can take to make things better? Yeah, great question. I mean, there's this work is, it requires so much. It requires us to personally look within and understand how we understand what our privileges are and understand um, how we have benefited and also look to create opportunities for others to come in and to create space for other viewpoints and and points of view. And so um, there are kind of two ways that we work to address this. One is understanding the systemic issues, how um, racism really lives in our spaces, even though, of course, that's never our intention. What are the unintentional things that exist within us and within our movement and within our organizations that create the strict systems and structures that allow inequity to live and thrive, and then also within ourselves. So we recently, um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself with the book, but we recently launched a book that is um, a really personal exploration of how people came to both understanding and caring about animal issues and also how um, their own racial identities became clearer um, and how we want to focus on making a better and stronger movement. We do mm -hmm. also work at the systemic level. We do offer trainings. We offer support for organizations um, in a more holistic, comprehensive way. I mean, that's kind of our approach to working at the structural level. Um, we really see this as something that needs to be tackled on both fronts, and we're really trying to pave the way for that. You're busy. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> the book you mentioned, Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation. Now, this is a brand new book. When we say hot off the presses, I mean, this one is like, don't don't touch it, but buy it. <laughs> um, so tell us the, the history of that and how it came about and what are some of the best things we're going to get when we read it. Yeah, so we this book came about through our inaugural inaugural Racial Equity Institute, which was held in March of 2020. And we were going through a lot of the concepts, a lot of the basics. Our trainings typically are day one is kind of an exploration on concepts at a more fundamental level. 
And then day two was really like bringing it to life within our movement and within each of us individually and within our organizations. So at some point, um, Jasmine Singer, who is our esteemed editor, raised the idea of what if we personally talked about these issues in our own lives, in our own advocacy efforts. And our trainings are always very interactive. And a lot of people jumped in right as she was saying that and said, I would love to be a part of that effort. I don't know what that looks like, but let's let's brainstorm offline after this training is done. And there was so much enthusiasm that um, I was like, okay, maybe this is, should be another Encompass project. And so we started a thread and it seemed like there was a good amount of effort to actually put pen to paper and write personal vulnerable essays and then we started editing them and we launched them on the sentient media website which was one of our supporters and collaborators and as soon as it launched we were approached by a publisher to turn the essays into a book um and that was just an amazing moment and it was really something we had kind of hoped might happen we thought it was kind of a far-off dream and so for all of these things to happen synchronistically was just so amazing and then we held another institute in October of 2020, um, largely because we got so many requests, especially as the racial um, reckoning was happening after George Floyd's murder. And so we held another second institute, which was not fully planned in the beginning of the year. And we got even more contributors. And then we really felt like we had a pretty solid book um, that we could put together. And so that's how it came to be. What a great story. And of course, I love your publisher, Lantern Books. Um, the publisher, Martin Rowe, has been on this program a few times. He's one of our instructors at Main Street Vegan Academy, where we train uh, vegan lifestyle coaches. And he has a good eye for yes. what's going to be a great book. So I'm really excited about uh, getting to read it. So just what do you want people to take away after they read these very thoughtful essays? It's a very good question, and I'm still, to be frank, finding my way to articulate this. I think I want people to better understand that these issues connect, um, that we don't work in silos, that animal advocacy isn't something that's done completely in a vacuum outside of all the other factors and issues we deal with in society. Um, I would like people to be able to think about their own journeys, especially as we largely come to this work as animal advocates. Um, most of us weren't born vegetarian or vegan. Most of us weren't born into activism. And so there was a moment where we had to reckon with our own complicity in animal suffering and our own participation in it. And that's a really difficult thing to do. And similarly, as we work to address race and racism, I'm really hoping that this book allows people to think about these issues with more complexity and depth and not think of it as something that has been solved or was a problem in the past and that we're past it. Um, because Black, Indigenous, and people of the global majority are still very much suffering and we're still dealing with the effects of, of that pain and suffering to this day. And we're still you know, losing our lives over it. So while it may look different, it's still something that is present for us as animal advocates. So help me understand one of the things that you talk about on, on your website and, and in some of the materials that you sent me is how 
dealing with this issue with the racism or vestiges of racism that exist within the animal rights movement is going to not only be better for people, but better for animals too. Yes. So there are so many things and we have with many blog posts um, about this, but in short, we know that especially in the vegan context, um, a lot of the work we do fails to really significantly engage communities of color. And we know that factory farming fairly substantially disproportionately harms those communities. We know that there's labor exploitation. We know that there is food apartheid, you know, the places where grocery stores are, where the fast food, um, you know, we know that there's very stark differences. And then there's the very real effects of environmental racism. And so we, as we kind of hold space for both who is impacted by the effects of farming, factory farming and animal agriculture, we know that our own movement's demographics and our homogeneity really limits our ability to grow. It, it impacts our ability to own our power. It impacts creativity and innovation. These things are very well documented um, in social science, in corporate research. Um, and so we don't want to exacerbate those problems. Of course, if you ask any animal advocate, that would be the, the bottom line. The issue is how are we inadvertently doing that? And so what we really say is, and that's why we use that word anti-racism, there isn't a passive way to be anti-racist. You're either you know, on one side or you're on the other. And I know that that's a hard thing for a lot of people to hear, um, but being non-racist is being complicit in a system because it is really predicated upon um, some winning and some losing. And so we know that if we fail to address racism, racial, racial inequity, we just, we really can't achieve our mission to build a world that's kinder and more compassionate for animals. We are really in this together as humanity and as, as animal kind. And of course, humans are animals. And so we're really trying to help people better understand that we are interdependent on one another and we have to address this at all levels. And I believe you have just given us a really good introduction to the upcoming Racial Equity Institute that's going to be happening in late October. Can you tell yeah. us a little more about that? Yeah. So it, in late October, we're going to have um, our fourth racial equity training. It is an opportunity to look at how racism operates in our society, in our movement, um, how and why fostering racial equity increases our, our a more effective movement and why actually opting out of racial equity leads to underperformance. So we're really looking, like I said, at both the social societal impacts and then how to apply it to our movement. And we are hoping to really have people leave with concrete action items. I actually have a three page document with concrete steps, bulleted list of how to apply this to yourself to your organization and to your movement. So we're really trying to make it um, give you an understanding of the roots and also what you can do, concrete strategies to make it come to life. 
cool. If you're interested in that, you can go to encompassmovement.org slash training. And that's also one of the places where you can get the book, encompassmovement.org slash book. And all of those URLs will, of course, be on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. So just for clarity, we do know that the largest growing demographic within the vegan community is African-American men and women. So I think somebody could see that and then hear what you're saying about the disparities in the animal rights movement and not know what to do with that. Is there a vegan world and an animal rights world and maybe they don't quite connect? What's happening Mm. with that? There are many factions within the animal movement. You know, there are some who participate more in the grassroots sector. I think there are some that come at this more from an environmental justice standpoint, people who focus more on climate change, of course, animals. So I think there are a lot of different ways that people come to this issue. And I'm really interested in supporting people at all levels and wherever they're at. And so, you know, at some level, when I hear you say that it sounds like we should be more united. And I also think it's okay for our movement to live at many different intersecting points. And to take that one step further, you know, vegan being vegan is something that obviously is very important to me. I have been vegan for over 20 years. But I also think it's important to support people wherever they're at in their vegan journey. And so, you know, people who say they care about animals and want to do even take even smaller steps, if that's a part of their process, I'm willing to, you know, encourage that. So I don't know if I'm fully answering your question, but I think I think there are people at all layers and all levels. And I really just want to help make veganism more mainstream, just like you, you have in your, your branding. Yeah, I think that's, that's so true that it's a funny thing. I saw the new movie last week, the documentary eating ourselves to extinction. Mm. And I walked out of the theater wanting to be one of those incredibly pushy vegans that just opens the door of a restaurant and starts screaming at people. But I know, number one, I'd be very bad at that. You know, some people can actually carry off uh, aggression. I can't. And it just wouldn't work. And I just feel so much more comfortable in the more allowing space and trusting that this is the way we have to go. This is the way we will go. And I just want to be on the side of doing it with kindness and respect. Completely. Sounds like that's where you are, too. Yep. So I want to ask you, I'm glad we have a few minutes left for a more personal question because we are the Spiritual and Spirited Vegan Podcast and I noticed in in your bio that you are a Zoroastrian. How fascinating. (laughs) Tell us what that is and uh, how you do that in the world today. Yeah, so Zoroastrianism is one of the world's oldest monotheistic religions. Our prophet lived about 3,000 years before Christ. Um, And it's really attributed with influencing uh, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, many, um, you know, many others. And the the core tenets of our religion state to have good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. And um, that's, that's, there are many other kind of elements and principles, but everyone who I know who's Rastri, and that's pretty much 
the tools through which we see the world and the kind of people we want to be. Um, so I, uh, I identify as being spiritual. I don't identify as being extremely religious, but I do feel very proud to be Zoroastrian. Um, if there's a big debate in our community within, with how to kind of define what Zoroastrianism is and who gets to be. Um, because we were persecuted, um, we, when we um, fled Iran, what is today Iran, which is where my people originally were, um, we went to the Indian subcontinent. And the only way that we were allowed in was by, agree was by agreeing at a pretty significant governmental level that we wouldn't proselytize. And so um, that has kind of translated into you can only really claim to be Zoroastrian if you're born with both mother and father who are Zoroastrian. And with that kind of rule, we now know that there are about a hundred, about 120,000 of us in the world. Um, we're very much a dying religion. So there's been a big debate about whether people can convert into it, um, whether one parent is sufficient for being Zoroastrian. And of course, there's very varying views on that. Um, I, most of my parents are Zoroastrian, so there's pretty much no debate with me. Um, but that's a little bit of an overview on, on Zoroastrianism. And yeah, I'm really happy to have the opportunity to talk about it. I never really do in these interviews. Oh, that's so fascinating. Well, you are the second Zoroastrian vegan that I know. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Dr. I know the Armady other one. May <laughs> yes. uh, has has been a guest on this program as well, and we'll link to that in the show notes for anybody that's interested. And I love this good thoughts, good words, good deeds, because when I can't remember all the complicated teachings of how we're supposed to live in the world, yeah. <laughs> sometimes you need something quick. Good thoughts, good words, good deeds. We can do that in the animal rights movement and in life in general. Absolutely. One final minute. What would you like everybody to know? I would just say uh, if you're interested in these issues, please check out our website, encompassmovement.org. We've got a blog with various different viewpoints and um, ideas that we're kind of punting around. We have um, resources for people of the global majority. We have resources for white folks and for organizations. We have trainings. Um, so I would just say consider checking us out. And if you're interested, uh, financially supporting our work is always important because we're funded exclusively through philanthropy. And philanthropy makes the world go round. That's right. So <laughs> the organization, EncompassMovement.org, the book is Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy. And you can get that just about any place where they're selling books. And our guest has been Ariana Shberti. Is that the most beautiful name you've ever heard? Beautiful name. Is that Persian? It is. Yes, oh, it is. <laughs> lovely. I've just ever, I wasn't sure how to pronounce it when I first heard about you and heard about your work. And then when I saw it spelled out phonetically, I've just been going around today saying, Ariana, it's just <laughs> such a such a beautiful sound. Maybe that's where mantras came from. People <laughs> said uh, words that were beautiful and found that it healed their souls. So everybody, one more book for your collection. This one's a keeper. And we have another great book coming up in our second half. That is Lucas Spiegel's The Weight of Empathy. So be sure and check that one out, too. And we're going to have a delicious 26.5 minutes learning about Lucas's travels around the world and the absolutely glorious photographs 
of beautiful people and beautiful animals that resulted. So stay with us and we'll be back after these messages from Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for being here today. Always a pleasure. So I would love to do a quick shout out to our sponsor, the good people of Compliment. And this is a wonderful array these days of vegan nutritional supplements made by vegans for vegans. You know the people that are behind these products, the wonderful uh, registered dietitian, Pamela Ferguson, PhD, the no meat athlete, Matt Frazier, and one of our favorite medical doctors, Dr. Joel Kahn. The website is lovecompliment.com, and if you put in, in all capital letters, Main Street, you'll get yourself a discount on these wonderful products. Some are liquid, some you can chew. It's the specific nutrients that people on a really good plant-based diet might need. So custom-made, that's pretty good, lovecompliment.com. Our guest right now has written the most extraordinary and visually enticing travel memoir that I have seen in a good long time, and that is called The Weight of Empathy. Our guest is its author and its photographer, Lucas Spiegel world traveler, former architect, social entrepreneur, and longtime vegan. And his memoir tells the story of a 22-month trip around the world where he spent time volunteering at animal sanctuaries on four continents. Welcome, Lucas. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for reaching out. I just love having this book. I love having it on my coffee table. And even though I haven't had guests in a while, because of the pandemic, I'll sometimes sit down and pretend like I'm the guest and seeing <laughs> these beautiful pictures for the first time. So thank you so much for putting beautiful work out into the world. So what caused you to decide to pack up everything and spend two weeks on the road? Two years. Two years. Uh, yeah, it was, um, 
uh, back in 2015, I was living in Vancouver, Canada, and I, I had decided not to stay there for a couple of reasons. And so um, started thinking about next steps and uh, sort of goals that I had in, in life that I, I wanted to to uh, pursue. And a lot of things I wrote on my list were places around the world I wanted to see and, and friends around the world I wanted to to visit again. So I started developing this plan. Since I, I wasn't coming back to Vancouver, I didn't have a job I, I needed to to come back to. So I decided it would be a lot easier to see all of these different places if I just went from one to the next to the next instead of, you know, hopefully having two weeks of vacation a year and traveling to some place and barely getting over jet lag before I had to come home. So I constructed this plan to essentially travel west uh and keep going until I got all the way around the world and came back. So the longer I planned, the uh, the longer my outline got. And yeah, by the time I actually went on this trip and completed it, it was, um, yeah, 22 months, almost two years um, around the world. That is absolutely stunning. I, I did the mini version. Um, long time ago uh, back in the 1990s but they mm -hmm. i don't know if they still have those round the world tickets where if you keep going in one direction and you're allowed one backtrack <laughs> then you just yeah. keep on going uh you know it's it's a prefix and and it, it it worked although we were only gone two months actually we did it twice two months each okay. time but i think you really had the idea to just completely immerse yourself so um i guess you left from vancouver and where did you go from there yeah, that I went down uh, the West Coast um, through Oregon, where I, I have been based for a long time, and I, I currently live in, um, down to San Francisco and L.A., and then I flew to Australia first. Um, just to give you the, the basic outline, it was Australia for three months, uh, up to Japan for three months, and then through Southeast Asia, um, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, and Myanmar for about five months, and then into India for about six months with a, a um, detour to Sri Lanka, uh, then up to um, over to Europe, um, to France, Spain, uh, Italy, um, Germany, uh, the Netherlands, and Denmark uh, with another detour to Israel and Egypt, and uh, from there back to New York, and then across the country back to the West Coast. Wow. I think that maybe second only to astronauts who get to see the planet <laughs> as a glorious blue ball. You have seen this world and have an understanding of it that I'm sure you didn't before and that most of us don't have. When you think about the term oneness, what, what comes up for you? Mm. Um, I mean, I, I certainly am extremely lucky to have seen as much of the world as I've seen, even though uh, while it sounds like uh, somewhat comprehensive, it's just one narrow slice of the world that I was uh, I was able to see um, through that trip. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I definitely I don't know if this is where you're going with that question, but there's there's definitely a lot of commonality with everyone <clears throat> from different cultures all around the world, um, and you definitely see that. As you travel, um, you know people are people are kind everywhere. People are cruel everywhere. Um, people are, you know, have the same a lot of the same concerns, um, basic 
basic wanting to meet their basic needs and be happy and um, be safe and um, and share joy in the world. Um, but it's also equally uh, impactful to see just all the ways in which we're different um, and and really to see that distinction between the things we assume are universal and turn out just to be our own culture that we're used to. Um, and uh, I mean, this. so back in 2011, I actually lived in India for a year and that was uh, very, <laughs> uh, very impactful uh, experience um, in this regard um, because it is such a profoundly different culture than uh, the culture in the U.S. Um, in so many ways, it's it's almost hard to describe. Um, but one, I mean, just one example that I always sort of thought of is in India, the sort of standard is when you turn the light switch down, it turns it on. <laughs> Instead of in the U.S., the default is you turn the light switch up to turn it on. And that is something that just, it makes intuitive sense to me. I wouldn't have even thought that there would be anyone else who would do that differently or think to do that differently. Um, and of course, that's just a very, very minor thing. Um, but it just kind of shakes you out of uh, this sort of stagnation in your mind where you just assume that the way things are, the way that they're, you're used to them is universal. And of course, that can be applied to um, to many, many things from you know the way that we interact and social norms to the way we treat animals, the kinds of food we eat, um, the way we move through the world, the way we communicate, all of those things. Mm. So a- as a vegan, did, did you have any second thoughts? Like, how am I going to eat? What am I going to eat? Did you have any problems? Um, I would say it was, it was easier probably than um, people might assume. Um, I I had a a bit of a foolish strategy um, going going into the the trip. Um, Basically, there were some places I I knew would be easy. You know, I having lived in India, I knew that that, for instance, there's you know some of the most incredible, delicious, and available vegan food in the world is in India. Um, But some of the other places I I honestly choose chose. partly because I knew that there was a large Buddhist population in the country. So I assumed that there would be some, uh, <clears throat> some presence of a, a traditional Buddhist like vegetarian cuisine. Um, and then not until actually getting out there did I realize that, well, Buddhists have different um, belief systems and different practices in different countries. Um, for instance, in, in Myanmar and Cambodia, there's extremely high uh, portion of uh, the population is Buddhist, but in their particular version of the practice, there's no prohibition uh, against eating meat. <laughs> so those places were harder than I expected, uh, but then some other places uh, were were easier than expected. Um, I was on a, a remote uh, island off the coast of Italy, um, <clears throat> kind of unprepared uh, for the experience. Um, didn't have a place to stay, but I, I found a little spot in the woods and I 
uh, threw down some cardboard and I slept there for about four days because the uh, the low at night was about 70 degrees. There was no rain and no mosquitoes. And there was a beautiful Adriatic Sea for me to swim in every day. And it was incredible. But the way the reason that story is relevant is the little market in town had uh, vegan ice cream, <laughs> uh, which is I am. I'm very much uh, an enthusiast for vegan ice cream. So uh, that was very exciting for me. And also just kind of mind blowing that at this this point in time, there there's actually vegan food um, in a place like that. So, so remote. So some places were surprisingly easy. Some places were a little more challenging. Um, but there's, you know, there's always there's always something to get me through and whatever sort of inconvenience that might've, um, might've created, it was, it was well worth the, the opportunity to, to see these new places. I would say what, what was more difficult, uh, as a vegan, as a, as a compassionate, empathetic person was just seeing the suffering of animals, um, and the suffering of humans and, that was much more difficult in in a lot of places than than actually trying to find uh, vegan food, um, and that was was really one of the main things that I that I struggled with and grappled with and um, and ended up writing about in in the book as well. And I think that's important for anybody to read who is planning to travel. I know before I did those big travels. I had ideas, you know, I had I preformed ideas of, well, this is what I'm going to see in this country in terms of how people relate to animals, and this is what I'll see in this country. And I was often wrong. And, and when I was wrong, especially if I was expecting more compassion and saw less, my heart was broken, first for the animals, but also for having to grieve this idea that I had. So I think it's good to check out ideas uh, <laughs> before we renew the passport. So you yeah. actually worked in some animal sanctuaries all around the world. Tell us about those. Yeah, so I think that is, um, it wasn't my plan as I started out. Um, there was really only one plan to visit an animal sanctuary, which was uh, an elephant sanctuary in Thailand um, that a friend of mine had told me about. And so I had that sort of on my outline. Um, but I think it really influenced me to to see all of this, you know, animal suffering out there. And that sort of pushed me in the direction of, of visiting these animal sanctuaries and volunteering at them um, where I could um, as a way to to feel a little bit better about the situation. So I could at least contribute to the solution in some small way. So I ended up seeing, uh, visiting and volunteering at uh, animal sanctuaries in uh, Tasmania, Australia, um, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, um, Myanmar, India, Sri Lanka, uh, Spain, Italy, and Denmark. Um, and it was really an incredible experience and really formative uh, in terms of what I got out of the entire trip and how it, it sort of changed the course of my life. And yeah, it was just some of the the great highlights of my trip. Uh, anything from volunteering with 
um, farm animal sanctuaries with chickens and pigs and cows um, and donkeys. Uh, I have a huge love for donkeys. They are just the the sweetest, most affectionate, playful creatures uh, out there, um, which I have a, a, a new appreciation for since volunteering with them. But I also got to volunteer with uh, elephants and uh, moon bears and uh, koalas and uh, monkeys. So um, yeah, I'm really grateful that I had all of those opportunities. Wow. I don't want to be jealous, but anybody who's got <laughs> to hang out with monkeys, I, I oh, just, yeah. there's something about non-human primates that I've, I've always been fascinated by and hope one day to make one of those mountain trips to, to see the gorillas. So, well, tell us about the, we'll start with that since I'm doing the interview. Talk about the mm -hmm. monkeys. What are monkeys like up close and what kinds were you working with? Um, the monkeys, they were at a, a sanctuary in northern Thailand that I was volunteering at for a few weeks. And, um, yeah, it was kind of, I mean, I guess there was a combination of wonder and kind of sadness as well in working with them because they are wild animals. They, you know, certainly chickens and, and pigs and cows uh, desire and need some freedom and autonomy in their lives, but they are domesticated. So they, they're much more compatible with uh, a life that is um, not necessarily in captivity, but sort of in, uh, in a shared environment with humans. And monkeys are wild animals. Um, so no matter how big their enclosure is, they have this, you know, innate uh, just desire to be free, to, to explore, to be in, in wild nature. Um, and so, so there's a, a kind of sadness that you can never really provide them with, um, with the full measure of, of freedom that they deserve, um, but you do the best that you can. And um, and it's really much better than the alternative in in most cases. Of um, course. But actual the the experience of being able having that privilege of being able to interact with them is really incredible. Um, they they are just so similar to humans in so many ways, and it's just it's amazing to see those that sort of reflection of, of human behavior or or really you know see human behavior as a reflection of monkey behavior because we're um you know they're not copying us we are just uh, very similar very close on the evolutionary tree yes um so even there's a photograph in in the book that is um this monkey named ling noi who is a, a one-year-old um monkey who I, I had uh, quite a sweet connection with uh, I would go over to his cage and he would he would signal for for me to come and groom him and that was very sweet so he would come up to the to the uh, side of the cage where I was and I would reach in and and pet him on the back and he would reach through the the cage back and he would groom uh, like the hair on my arm as as though he's like looking for bugs and things. Uh, not there were no bugs in my arm hair, but uh, it was very, very sweet to be able to have that 
direct connection. And, and this photograph in the book that really sticks with me is uh, his little hand uh, inside of my hand. Oh. And not only to have that connection, but to see the the fingernails and the fingerprints and the, the wrinkles on his hand are just almost the same as those on my hand. It's just he's slightly furrier and uh, smaller, um, but it really it really kind of breaks down those those barriers that we think of humans and non-human animals as fundamentally different and that's that's just really not the case yes the the beautiful book everybody the weight of empathy and this is a book to read and also a book to get lost in visually and the website is weightofempathy.com now you also have an interesting instagram presence that's uh, earth mm -hmm. dot and spelled out dot eats e-a-t-s and all that will be in the show notes at mainstreetvegan.net what do you do on instagram uh well i share my photography uh, these days I'm, I'm promoting my book um and yeah i try to try to share photography that that's compelling and also has uh, sort of an interesting backstory um so i, I hope that people read the, the captions and, and don't just uh, glance at the, the imagery. Um, but yeah, that's uh, sort of my main social media presence. So uh, I'd appreciate any uh, anyone who's interested to check it out. Wonderful. So you did this incredible two-year journey. You met people. You met animals. You saw a lot of things that we would put in the good column and the terrible column. And as a result of all of it, how are you different? Well, it impacted me in a lot of ways. It was, you know, 22 months uh, of almost continuous, really intense experiences. Um, you know, sometimes they were they were painfully difficult. Sometimes they were full of joy and wonder. Um, but they it literally took me two years of writing this book to kind of process the whole experience and and figure out what it all meant to me. Um, but really, the main way that it impacted me was uh, basically these connections. The, the, the longer I traveled, the more that I saw, the more people and animals I connected to. It made me feel a greater sense of, of duty to, to be a, a force for good in the world to really minimize the the suffering footprint that I have as I walk through the world and also increase the joy around me in the world. And um, so, yeah, I decided when I came back that I would leave my architecture career, um, which did not have really the, the sort of scale of positive impact that I, I wanted to have. Um, and I would commit to basically um, maximizing the good that I can do with my life. And that's a somewhat broad and vague uh, goal. Um, and I'm still figuring out what that means. But when I first came back, I started a philanthropic project, which was a vegan dog treat company called Haven Hearts that donated 100% of profits to animal sanctuaries. 
and told the story of, of rescued animals in the process. Um, and I ran that uh, for about three years and had quite a bit of success, but unfortunately COVID kind of just uh, had other plans for me. So sadly had to wind that down. Um, I shifted focus to finishing and publishing this book, uh, which as, as well as, as hopefully providing um, an entertaining uh, way to share my story is also a kind of call to action for, for others to, um, to do good with their lives and reduce their suffering footprint. And um, so I'm focusing on that. And, and next steps, I am figuring out as I go. So I feel like I'm guided by the right principles and where that takes me, we'll have to wait and see. It's just beautiful. I mean, to me, you've just described a life of ahimsa, a, a spiritual life just waiting for the next indicated thing. Gosh, I would love to meet you in, in uh, all the dimensions <laughs> one day <laughs> when COVID is passed. So we're down to our last minute and a half, and we will totally be kicked off when the time comes, so we're going to have to talk fast. Okay. But for anybody that wants to do this, anybody listening today who's like, I want to do that once COVID is better, what do yeah. they do? Do you have a few tips? Um, I would say I would really check out um, volunteering opportunities at animal sanctuaries or otherwise. Um, certainly some are better than others, but do your research. Um, there's also uh, Woofing, which is uh, worldwide opportunities on organic farms, and uh, another website called Health Exchange. And those are ways to connect you with locals uh, where you can uh, essentially work for a room and board on their organic farm, uh, et cetera. Um, and those are really incredible ways to to have meaningful connections uh, with locals, um, have sort of a rich cultural exchange, uh, be educational for you, useful to the people who live there, um, and is, is much more meaningful than just going and, and getting drunk on, on someone else's beach, um, for <laughs> instance. Um, so yeah, I would say just um, try to get out there and make um, meaningful connections and, and be useful uh, in the process. Well, Lucas Spiegel, you have made a meaningful connection with me in this conversation, and I Thank know you, you so have with the, with the listeners as well. The book again, The Weight of Empathy beautiful title, right? So thank you, Lucas, and thanks to our earlier guest, Arianish Birdie. So check out both of these wonderful books, The Weight of Empathy and Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy. Maybe a nice weekend's reading is ahead for you. All the best in every single way, and we will see you next time. God bless. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. If you're inspired by the teachings of Dr. Wayne Dyer, you will love the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast with Nadia Dela Cruz. You are a spiritual being having a human experience. My name is Nadia Dela Cruz, and I started the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast to explore spiritual topics like manifestation and meditation. 
with guests who share their own stories of insight, awakening, and transformation. Listen now on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.